Italian Wine Podcast. Chin Chin with Italian Wine People. This podcast is brought to you by Native Grape Odyssey. Native Grape Odyssey is an educational project financed by the European Union to promote European wine in Canada, Japan, and Russia. Enjoy. It's from Europe. Hello, this is the Italian Wine Podcast with me, Monty Walden. My guest today is Sarah Heller, Master of Wine. Welcome. Thank you very much. Really excited to be here. So you have uh, another title to your... Yeah, so in the context of what we're doing here... Um, here I'm being... Here being Verona on the final day of the Vinitaly International Academy Verona 2019. Um, so I am one of the two faculty members of the Via Ambassador Program, which is sort of the pinnacle of the Vinitaly International Academy. Um, and myself and Henry Navarre have been working for approximately a year now to reformulate the Vinitaly International Academy Ambassador Program. Okay, so what does that mean, the Vin Italy International Ambassador Program? It sounds like an Air Miles Club or something. <laughs> Say that to Stevie Kim's face. No, so Vin Italy International is Stevie Kim's organization that she uses to um, create amazing programming to really increase understanding and appreciation for in Italian wine all around the world. And this is really the educational prong of Stevie's work. So it's, it's a program that's been around for a couple of years, but over the past year, um, as I explained, Henry and I have been working, obviously with some strong guidance from Stevie and the advisory of Attilio Scienza, our chief scientist, to try and create a program that's ultimately a little bit more market friendly than what we had before. It's really focused on ensuring that our students, particularly those who have passed, passed the ambassador or even the expert level. So the ambassador level is, is, the, is, that the, is that the entry level qualification? So you become an ambassador and if you really score highly um, on the exam and then pass another round of blind tasting, um, you have the privilege of calling yourself an Italian wine expert. Okay, so this is so there's theory and the practical side. Yes, absolutely. So the exam used to be almost entirely, for, particularly for the ambassadors, based on a hundred question multiple choice exam. And when the two of us, Henry and I, came on board, um, I had especially strong feelings about how we could make the exam a little bit more multidimensional. It was definitely Stevie's feeling that we should be um, that we should be incorporating tasting in a more rigorous way, and I couldn't agree with her more. Tasting has always been a part of the program, obviously, particularly when the focus was more on unusual grape varieties that people might not have had the opportunity to taste, but it was never quite so structured as a lot of formal wine education programs. My I mean, do you, do you see the tasting as a, you know, there's, we, there's so much theory in wine, isn't there? And there's so much complication in Italian wine. You think that the actual tasting of, quote, everyday varieties, exposure to the key, like Sangiovese, for example, or Nebbiolo, that's your building block, isn't it? For, for someone then to get deeper into those obscure Italian grape varieties of which there are maybe three hectares or something like that. They're really kind of deep down stuff. Absolutely. So a major adjustment of our focus has been to ensure that people have, as you say, really deep knowledge of the grape varieties and regions 
that are A, really important in the market and B, really well known. So the, the ones we're starting out with really here are Nebbiolo and Sangiovese in all their different geographies, but obviously focusing on Piemonte and Tuscany. So tasting-wise, we've really made an effort to try and find wines that express more site specificity in order to hopefully support the, the material that we're teaching in the theory portion. Um, so what is it when you say site specificity? So you're talking about, say, we're talking about Nebbiolo, we're talking about the difference between Barolo and Barbaresco, or are we te- teaching the difference between single vineyard? Not quite Barolo. single vineyard, because I think there's still a little bit too much um, producer variation to get really granular as far as MGAs, um, but um, certainly trying to look for village-based styles, both in Barolo and Barbaresco. Um, so that's been something we've tried to emphasize. And of course, with Sangiovese, there's a bit more controversy. I think the, the Nebbiolo producers have really embraced site specificity. You would know better than anybody, I think, the possible reluctance by some producers in, uh, in Montalcino um, and in Chianti Classico to really um, tie their carts to the to the um, subzoning course. Yeah, I mean, it's going to happen, I think. I think so, or I hope so, certainly, but... I mean, do you have fun teaching this? I mean, you're quite, you know, you're very precise and you've got a fantastic communicator. You make everybody very relaxed when you're, when, you're, when you're teaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you feel like you're making headway already with your students or is it still a learning curve for you as well? Oh, I absolutely love teaching this course. Um, I don't... I don't teach that much. To be honest, I I think this is this has improved since I've become a parent, but I'm not enormously patient. So so dealing with people who are um, especially people who don't want to be in a room, right? If you're teaching a course that somebody has to attend for work and you're really having to do a kind of a song and dance to get them interested in the subject at all, is just not something I'm really equipped to do. But, but most of your students imagine, I mean, I think very few of them would have been sort of frog-marched here absolutely. in handcuffs and told, no. right, you are going to learn about the 75 clones of Sangiovese. No, exactly. The people who are here are really excited to be here. They really want this. And that enthusiasm I thrive on it. And also... But you have to temper that sometimes. We have to stick to facts. And... Particularly when I'm talking about things like history, absolutely. Because you can go down so many rabbit holes. <laughs> Particularly talking about somewhere like Sicily, that literally every population group, it seems like, has passed through at some point or other. Yeah, I think, I think there were a couple of people yesterday who might have liked me to go through that a little bit more quickly. But yeah, so I try to bear in mind... The things that I'm interested in are not always the things that everybody else is interested in. And so trying to make sure that they're equipped with um, stories and facts that really are useful for, for their activity, whether they be sommelier or distributors, journalists even. What kind of feedback do you get? Do you have a feedback mechanism where you ask your students, am I being too geeky or am I not giving you enough information? Part of it is looking at the faces in the room. There's, there's, quite, there's quite a lot you can learn from that. Fortunately, I've never seen more than one or two people asleep at any given time. Okay. So I feel like that's a good rate out of 60, 62, 63 people, however many we have. But then also, fortunately, the, the student group this time were pretty clear about letting us know in the breaks or at the end of class. Um, this has been really helpful. This was really unclear. So give us an example. So, so somebody, somebody said to me, you know, I think the, the tasting could be improved if we had, um, say, more one-on-one time with the tutors that would 
allow us to practice practice blind tasting individually. It's like as much as I would love that. We you know we're two people, so I, I think there there's something needing to be done about whether we could have designated tasting tutors. We started that a little bit with some of some of Stevie's team who are more experienced tasters. But yeah, we get all kinds of great ideas from what the students feel like they need. So if we're tasting a wine, mm-hmm. you're teaching us about tasting a particular wine. Yeah. What what are, what are you going to tell me to look at? You just say, well, it smell. Think about the smell, the texture, the tannin, the sweetness. What are, what are we going to be looking for? Yeah, well, so unfortunately, we don't get to go into every single wine running through the the grid systematically but we try to at minimum do two wines in every session where we go you know some would say pedantically through every line of our grid um so do you want to try and take a look at that one now sure so you've devised this yourself right nothing is created entirely from scratch what we've done is to try and adapt standardized tasting formats um, to really be able to distinguish important differences that are, I wouldn't say unique to Italian wine, but um, are particularly appropriate for Italian wines. This little booklet, just describe what we're looking at here. So it's divided up into um, a number of sections. So the first being appearance, then aromas and flavors. Aromas being what you pick up on your nose, flavors being the same organ, the um, olfactory bulb, but what you pick up from your mouth, Um, structure, quality, winemaking, and then your conclusion, right? So the grape and the region is what we will ultimately expect them to conclude. But um, really what we're more concerned with is that they're making accurate observations. Okay, so just if we look at the color, for example, Mm -hmm. appearance is the the first one. So you've got three little sort of boxes, one with a sort of black color, one with a yellowy color, one with a reddish, and one with a sort of palish orange. Mm -hmm. And underneath, um, just tell us what we see for the first box. Yeah, so this first box... The words that we see underneath. Right, so the first box is intensity, and we go from pale to medium to deep. And then hue? Hue, underneath that we have straw, which was a little bit of a fight that we'll come back to maybe This is for white wine? For white wine. So straw, we're saying, is the palest hue for white wine. Then lemon, then gold. And then for reds, we've got three coming up for reds. Indeed. For reds, we have purple, ruby, and garnet. And finally, for rosé wines? For rosé, we go from pink to salmon to orange. Okay, and then we go down to the structure. Now you have six categories there, so sweetness, acidity, tannins, body, alcohol, and texture. So just talk us through those one by one. Yeah, and we actually have aromas and flavors right before structure. Okay, but you leave that sort of blank area though, isn't it? Yes, so what we do is we allow them to list six aromas and flavors. Six? Yes. I struggle to find two sometimes in a while. Exactly, but we, we only give them four points. So they effectively have two discards. So they have six opportunities to get something that aligns with what we have also found. I think we're being reasonably generous. Already I think I would have failed this. <laughs> if you give me a, I don't know, I'm terrible at, you know, some of my rhyme writer colleagues are brilliant. They're coming up with 85 different adjectives wow. yeah. and I just can't. Anyway, so that's that. So now we, then we get on to structure. This is really pretty standard for, for most wine tasting. So we have... Things like sweetness. Admittedly, most of the wines that we try are dry, so that's kind of a giveaway point. We really just expect them to say dry, off dry, or sweet. We're not particularly specific about levels of residual sugar. Acidity, we give them a five-point scale, so low, medium, minus, medium, plus, 
high. Similarly, body tannins, alcohol, we expect them to write down a number, but we'll accept the actual number plus or minus half a percent. Well, that's quite tight. It is tight. Um, certainly tighter than a lot of the um, regulations around labeling in different countries. But Do people normally get that right then? Is that one of the ones where they find easy or do they still find that difficult? It really depends how much tasting experience they have. It's something that you actually, I think, can teach virtually anybody if they focus just on alcohol. My, uh, my very good friend and former boss, Deborah Myberg, um, when she was a wine professor, one of the things that she would do that she would try to hammer home was helping f- people find these alcohol levels. It, it has to do with a two things. One, the body will give you a hint, right? The fuller body, the more likely there is to be high, high levels of alcohol. But then also there's a sense of heat. Um, particularly if there's not enough acid to balance it out. Right? You get the sense literally of warming on your mouth after ideally spitting out, not swallowing. But sometimes when it's a little bit confusing, I, I instruct people to something a little bit tricky to do without accidentally killing yourself, but hold the wine in your mouth and inhale. And if you're really getting a sense of warmth from that, you don't get confused as much by the acidity. Um, and so you can often detect high levels of alcohol, even when there are lots of other factors balancing it out. Okay. If you do that and don't choke on the wine. So what about texture? You know, Texture, exactly. That, that's a word that's coming into fashion now, I think, for tasting it notes. It is, yeah. Now, particularly in some, in some areas of the world, like in New Zealand, they're really talking about texture, but it's more to do with winemaking. So lees agitation or batonage, if you will, for the most part. Whereas what we're, we're talking about here really for texture with white wine is phenolic texture. The kind of white wine equivalent of tannin. Um, So what we've done here, we've tried to ask them, instead of giving us a level, because I think that's a little bit tricky with a lot of white wines, there's not necessarily that big a range of texture levels. So we've tried to get them to say that it's either clean texture, so meaning there's no notable phenolic character. So very fluid. Fluid, exactly. So we have those words, clean, fluid, light, I think. Then there's this sort of slippery type phenolic character, so either oily, creamy or waxy we're saying where you you understand that there is a phenolic texture but it's not causing friction so much it's almost lubricating the palate to an additional degree it's a great way of describing really absolutely i've learned something there i tell you no honestly that's that's cracking (laughs) well then we have more tannin like phenolic texture that we describe as either chalky powdery or if it's it's quite notable, then grainy. So we could, we're getting into sort of orange wine territory here. Or? Exactly. Yeah, either wines that have seen a long cold maceration before fermentation, although that really doesn't draw out a huge amount of phenolics, or some that have gone through a bit of fermentation on the skins, um, which is definitely a style we explore in this course fairly extensively. Can you sign me up? How do I join? <laughs> I, 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 I need to, we I need are to... more than welcome to join anytime. <laughs> I won't ask any questions around you. Okay, so now we're on quality, which is, I would say, is very subjective. It is, but we try and put it in as objective a framework as possible. We do still ask the students after they've done this supposedly um, or ostensibly objective quality assessment whether they like the wine. It's still an important part of this program more so than I think other formal wine education, because we are ultimately looking for ambassadors, right? Partisans, people who love the wines and are going to drive love for these wines in other people. So that's still an important part, but we try to separate out objective assessment of quality 
here. The first two points are intensity and concentration, which again, we assess on a five point scale from low, medium, minus, medium, medium plus, high. So you could have a wine that is very intense but isn't concentrated and vice versa. In fact, yes. So something we've we've kind of harped on in some of these tasting sessions is that there are particularly wines for early consumption, whites especially, tend to be quite intense on the nose, but not that concentrated on the palate. Right. So it's it's like the difference again between aromas and flavors. Right. Intensity is how much aroma are you getting and concentration is how much flavor are you getting. Something I've been very clear about is that intensity is not past the medium level, is not a more is better style thing, right? So just because a white wine is not immensely intense doesn't mean that it's not high quality. It probably just means that it's not an aromatic grape variety, right? Gewürztraminer is one of the most intense grapes that we have, but whether it's you know, are the are the greatest wines of the world exclusively made of Gewürztraminer? Um, I think very clearly not. But Olivier Humbrecht, if you're listening to this, <laughs> just just take a little time I out, buddy. Clearly lost my opportunity to work with Alsace there. Good thing I've I've uh, thrown in my trough with Italy. But I, I get what you're saying. Mm. That you're you're digging down into the the linguistic niceties. Mm. But in a scientific way, and it's, I think it's quite fine. I'm, I'm ta- I, we haven't finished yet. I'm taking. I'm totally. I'm totally sold on this. By the way, you, you know, you. if you were selling like a software, yeah. I would have signed yeah. it. I would have just bought it. Okay, I've got an iTunes wherever oh. you download it from. Okay, so that was career opportunities. Okay, so next. Yeah. So next balance. Um, so that's really to do with the structural elements we just talked about. It's the balance of the soft elements, so sugar, if there is any sweetness, body, and alcohol which of course are all sort of interrelated, versus acidity and tannin or acidity and texture in the case of white wine. It's very logical though, isn't it? You've got the the, the building blocks of the wine Mm -hmm. and then you're getting, right, does it all fit? Yeah, completely. So I I hope that um, the sequence that we've put this in has made it easy for the students to sort of make these assessments, right? Everything that they're finding in quality should be something that they're getting from the previous two sections, Mm -hmm. pretty much. So with balance, as I say, there needs to be there need to be enough soft elements and enough hard elements. Um, I don't really think of it in terms of like a scale or a you know what are those called um, seesaw so much as I think of the, the analogy that I've I've used a couple of times is like a mattress. Like you want hard springs, right? Firm springs that are your hard structural elements, but you also want enough padding, right? So that you have um, the structure that is both. Firm and resilient. Robust. But exactly. But comfortable. Um, but comfortable. Exactly. Exactly. So that balance is really just about structure. Um, we don't bring fruit concentration into it, which some people do. I know in other systems. Really just looking at structure here. Next. Then complexity. So that's really about how many different types of aromas and flavors do you have? It's not enough to have a lot of the same kind of flavor. So like five different kinds of cherry still just smells of cherries. That's not a complex wine. So we're looking for um, primary fruit along with other primary elements coming from the grape. Things like herbal notes, um, particularly fresh herbal notes, floral notes um, that are varietally specific. Um, So if a grape variety, for instance, has high levels of uh, rotundone, like Vespolina, we want to see that pepper coming through. Then we're looking for perhaps some winemaking notes where appropriate. So if it's a style that often has a little bit of oak, um, new oak, 
for complexity. So say, this is not necessarily very um, typical of our course, but if we were looking at a super Tuscan, I would expect to have some kind of cedar spice or baking spice from the oak, which is sort of what we expect. And then the our highest level of complexity, though, would be reserved for wines that are showing, particularly if they're older, some notes of evolution, right? Tertiary type notes, like in red wines, things like leather, tobacco, earth, uh, dried leaves. Um, in white wines, perhaps kind of mineral notes. Really don't like that term, but until we found a better one, we're stuck with it. So things like a hint of petrol. It's just really been considered a derogatory term in other parts of the world, but we don't mind a touch of petrol as long as it's balanced off by um, sufficient fruit. And then a, a kind of nutty, savory development as long as it's not aggressively oxidative. And that's what we're looking for with mature notes. So that kind of covers complexity. Next is concentration. It's a hot topic and it has been over the last 20 years in wine. Yeah, I mean, so we touched on it very briefly when we talked about intensity versus concentration. Concentration really being about flavour rather than aroma. Um, but we did get a question inevitably from our one French student in the group, uh, Jules, about, you know, I think high concentration is not what I'm looking for in wine. You know, when, when I'm looking for high quality, I'm looking for elegance, for finesse. I think he's a, he's a burgundy lover. And absolutely, I wanted to emphasize that by concentration, we don't mean... Weight. Weight, exactly. It's not so much to do with body as depth of flavor. It sort of links in with the next thing that's actually length, right? So, so the two are, are related. Concentration is like how much, um, how much flavor substance is there to the wine. And then length is how long can you continue to taste that? We really emphasize for the students that length is about flavor and particularly fruit flavor. All right, so if you can continue to taste oak five minutes later, that's not that's not the kind of length that we want. Similarly, we don't want to still be only getting the sensation of tannin or only tasting acidity five minutes later. It's interesting about you're quite firm on that, aren't you? About the the fruit, the definition of concentration is that fruit flavor continues rather than extraneous flavors that have been quotes added or built yeah, into the wine. Absolutely. Um, I think something that. I know I forgot when I was um, a young wine professional working with Italian wine, and particularly um, it was the, the trendy era for Italian natural wine in New York. And I, I had this very sort of youthful polemical view that wine doesn't need to have fruit, right? In fact, fruity wine is not what it's about. And um, it, it's taken me a long time to come around to the view, but wine is made of fruit, right? It should still remind us of the grapes um, that it was made from. This is not to say that wine should be fruit balmy, right, fruit jam or um, that sort of thing, but there should still be a purity to the fruit that's not completely overwhelmed by secondary and tertiary aromas. Yeah, so basically a great wine could be saline, it could be savoury, it could be mineral, it could be all this, but it's got to have that fruit component to it, whether it's a Chardonnay or a Sangiovese or whatever. Yeah, I mean, the, the one exception I'm thinking of at the moment is probably some of these deliberately oxidative Solera-aged styles where it's really you know, getting into a different getting into a different goal. But for table wines and not oxidatively aged wines, I think fruit fruit is really important. Okay, then the final one is age-worthiness. Age-worthiness. Um, indeed, so in that, we're looking at a combination of the balance, right? So the structure, our mattress. We have a nice, comfortable, but sturdy structure. And also concentration, right? Do we have enough fruit? 
and we have enough fruit sleeping in our on our mattress that it's all sort of worthwhile. I mean, if we have a great mattress but no fruit to rest on it, then you know we're going to wake up ten years from now and find that all we have um, is a structure, but but no, um, but nothing that made it worthwhile. Okay, so how would I'm coming to your tasting class? Mm-hmm. And my last two wines of the day are going to be one of them is going to be a prosecco, and one of them is a brunello, and I'm your student. Yeah. How do I pass? What am I going to be putting down to pass your test for those two wines? Age worthiness. Yeah, you know, what do I have to write? Age worthiness. Yeah. I, mean, I think Prosecco, there's broad consensus that despite the fact that it has some structural elements, or certainly some have structural elements that might permit for, for aging, say, um, you know, some of them have reasonable levels, pardon me, of residual sugar. So the one we tried in class had 28 grams per liter. And also fresh acidity, um, and also the the CO two that is another preservative. The fruit, because it's primarily driven by esters, perhaps even terpenes, those are the types of fruit aromas that don't necessarily have resilience over time. And that's something we've been very clear about in the tasting sessions. That wines that are driven mainly by aromatic intensity and not by fruit concentration or flavor concentration primarily, despite potentially having age worthy structures, are not designed for long aging Um, so we put them in what we call category one drink now or can be held but won't improve our medium category is something that will improve over a five-year time horizon in our estimation based on the structure and concentration and the nature of the aromas and flavors brunello um, is clearly as a whole one of the wine styles that is designed to improve considerably over time it's it's one of the world's finest wine styles as a whole so we would definitely be expecting unless we have a seriously flawed brunello in our lineup or something that's already aged for 20 30 years unlikely i'm I'm afraid in this course but we would expect it to be in category three of age worthiness which is can show improvement um, over 10 years or more and the reason, it's just 10 years or more, it's not like 30 years or... Because no. they're just random numbers, aren't they, at the end? <laughs> Indeed. I mean, 10 years, I think, is something that we can reliably predict. After that, it's it's down to any number of factors, the quality of the vintage, um, and particularly things like the storage. Right? At that point, it's sort of out of our control. So we just, we just set 10 years as our sort of outer boundary for age-worthiness, with the understanding, obviously, that with something like... Brunello, Barolo Barbaresco, Great Super Tuscans, Amarone. We, we really do have a longer time horizon than that. And with Brunello, so it's, it's down to the fruit concentration, the, the fact that it's more concentrated than necessarily aromatically intense, and that we have structure from acidity and tannins to permit long aging. So you enjoy giving this course? Very much so. Very much so. Especially the tasting part, because I think we we end up having students who come in with all different types of tasting background. Um, Some of them are are sommeliers, so they're used to thinking on their feet and really presenting everything orally. Um, Some people don't have any formal tasting experience, but they've been working with Italian wine for decades. And I I told them this in class, it's like we're creating an Italian wine tasting army, right, who've applied these really rigorous structures to all kinds of Italian wines that formal wine education programs like the WSCT, like the course, um, even the Institute of Masters of Wine are not necessarily applying their methodology to, right? They're, they're I think, Tintilia, for instance, right? Which from is a great variety. Yeah. Yes, a great Oops, variety yeah. from Molise, um, the one on which I think Molise has pinned its hopes. There, I think, we, we, we really wouldn't see 
many organizations applying a really rigorous standardized tasting format to that particular wine other than maybe the winemaker themselves but a thing about italian wine a it's extremely romantic and people get you know sort of caught up in the the food the history the um, all of the stories around the wine and also everybody is is very individualistic right so they're not necessarily comparing their wine even to other wines within Italy. So I said to our students, we're doing something really revolutionary here. Not only are we the communication from Italy to the rest of the world, but we're the rest of the world back to Italy, right? And hopefully we can even start to see um, some impact on, on the styles of wine that are coming out of these regions that are really genuinely focused on quality, what's in the bottle, rather than convincing us through the, the beauty of the store is that wines that potentially could be faulty are in fact totally fine. I mean, do you see this ultimately as, as influencing how wine lists are written? You know, well, a that student... would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, mean, that, I guess that's kind of like one of your goals, isn't it? Mm, yeah, completely. We want to make sure that two things, that we're, we're tasting in such a way that we are applying rigour to, to the styles of wine um, that we're encountering, but also that we're opening up um, international mindsets to the way that Italian wines are. Right? I tell everybody when they come in, you will read that such and such grape is low in acidity. They mean low in acidity in an Italian context, right? There really aren't very many low acid or low tannin grapes in Italy. It just, you have to recalibrate your palate to this additional level of structure. And another sort of idiosyncratic factor with Italian wine and Italian cuisine, I think, is an acceptance of bitterness. Right? Bitterness is seen, particularly, I think, in French wine and international sort of New World winemaking as a flaw. And I don't think it has to be. I think it's another flavor, sorry, not flavor, taste, that is an important element of balance. Not something we address directly here, but maybe at some point in the future we will. It's interesting you say that. I mean, one of the popular after-dinner drinks is amaro. Exactly. Isn't it? Exactly. And Italian cuisine is one of the few cuisines globally that has really embraced bitterness in vegetables and things like radicchio, particularly yeah. in the area where we are. Lampasioni. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Or I think a lot of cuisines just avoid it. It's it's a bitterness is an acquired taste that we we're not naturally drawn to as children. But I think as we become older, as our palates develop, a lot of the things that have some bitterness are, are really attractive to us because they provide a kind of cleansing contrast to extreme fattiness or richness. What's the what's the hardest question you get asked when you're giving your course? <laughs> well, the the challenging things for me are when people try to ask questions that are effectively trying to get out of me what is in the exam. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, or, oh, yeah. They gotta try. Yeah, or or what specifically to study. I think because the, the course is vast. Right, and we're also dealing with a bit of the legacy of what the course used to be, which was heavily focused on grape varieties, particularly um, lesser-known grape varieties. And so we're trying to trying to move to a place where we still respect that heritage. We certainly don't want to reject the notion that native grape varieties are a really important part of Italy's USP. But we have that was USP, not USB, like the drive. But we also recognize that Italy is so much more than its native grapes, or its native grapes are just a part of the history and culture that generated these amazing wine styles. So we've tried to really fill out the other, you know, call it 270 degrees of information about Italian wine 
So when people ask where to focus their attention, it's well, it's a lot, a lot of different places. Yeah, a lot to cram in. Mm. I think the schema that you've come up with is, um, I'm really impressed. I mean, I, when I saw the Thank booklet, you. I thought, how am I going to ask questions about this? I mean, because <laughs> I, haven't done the, I haven't done the course. Yeah. And I thought, well, this is going to be like the longest half an hour of my life. <laughs> but obviously with you in the room, oh, well, um, you. Yeah, I think you've, you've created something really, I, I need to come and sit the course. Yes. I really, I want, I see, yeah. I'm not joking. I'm not just saying that for the, for the um, audio. I want, I want to sit down and do it. I would love that. Yeah. No. As long as you don't give me bad marks. Oh, okay, I see. It comes with contingency. No, but you're a great communicator, and you, oh. you, you've got to always have a smile on your face. You, if, if you were teaching me, just listening to you now, I'd say I, I would just implicitly trust you, and you make complicated things sound manageable. Thank you know, wine can be incredibly complicated, even for professionals, even Indeed. for me. You know, I've yeah. been in business for a long time. It's, mm. I still find things really, really difficult, basic stuff that I should know, and I still can't get my head around them. Um, so well done. And I think it's uh, obviously your background, you know, working as you have um, for such a long time with some great people has obviously informed your your view yeah no, I've been and extremely lucky in who I've worked with yeah but you've got the, you've got the gift of communication so you're very lucky thank you that's what's what's and your students as well I'm, I'm really impressed honestly it's, I love interviewing you um, I learn a lot and um, I get paid to interview you I think oh well and I, 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 I'm like god I'm getting paid to learn stuff that I, <laughs> I should have learned 20 years ago when I, my, one of my first jobs in wine was working in Bordeaux with a guy I used to work with the first gross and da, 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 under the radar and he taught me about about barrel age reds and what to look for and what not to look for and I've always really struggled with wine competitions and, and wine tastings because I kind of look at it through that parameter and so often when I'm giving my notes to people they think I'm a bit crazy a little bit kind of off the scale but what you've done here absolutely would fit with what this guy was telling me in uh, it was a long 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 time ago about the quality of the tannins and the position of the tannin in the wine and how the tannin affects the fruit and the tannin from the wood and the tannin from the grape and um, it seems so easy then and then of course the more you dig it it's actually really complicated <laughs> like really really yeah, complicated no, I would never imply that, that tasting or blind tasting certainly is easy it isn't but it's also but when you say that magic. and we look at you like you literally walked into the master wine exam sat down for three minutes scribbled a bit and then walked out and you've yeah, like flying colours clearly that's what happened no 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 not, not remotely the case unfortunately but they must trust you I mean they have to I mean not only because you come up with this this um, schema they call it this um, matrix mm. but you you um if I met you in the pub, yeah, and we were just having a glass of wine, I would never kind of know you were a master of wine because you don't like flaunt your knowledge. Oh, and you don't, you don't. I mean, you're very, but at the end, it's oh, this lady she seems to know a lot about wine, but wasn't a snob. You know, it was actually quite entertaining. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, it's it's not. I mean, I think looking the way that I do, given given that most still most masters of wine are older English gentlemen. I don't really fit the um, the profile, but you know, I would never want to come across as somebody who thinks that they know everything. Especially in the case of Italian wine, there's just there are just endless avenues to pursue. So not something I ever feel like I have a thorough grip on. Yeah, I mean, you're, I'm sure your students relate to that as well. <laughs> yeah. I but I think the fact that you've designed it, the way you've designed it, is is someone that wants to make it simple for themselves, like almost like you designed it for yourself. To make, how mm. can I remember and, and, and categorize in a not in a negative way, but put wines in certain boxes yeah. for easy, like in a, a hard drive, easy reference. Yeah, completely. Um, that's something that over time we want to apply more and more to the theory part of the course. Because there are so many grape varieties. For instance, in uh, Valle d'Aosta, we have five or six different red grape varieties. 
that we cover. And I'm really keen as we go on to put those into more of a comparative context so that we're thinking about, okay, that this one has the highest level of tannins. Generally, this one has the lower level of tannins. Um, but then also comparing, because remember with tannins, it's not just about the level, but also the texture. We don't make them in our course identify the texture of tannins, we just ask for a level. But I think for your own identification purposes, red wine grapes are really distinguished by the texture of their tannins. We give them a few different analogies, one being the texture of um, dirt, right? So going from really fine powdery tannins to sandy, gritty, pebbly, gravelly, right? In in ascending order. Or um, something like fabrics, which is really something, I remember Deborah, again, my former boss. Deborah Meiberg. Master of Wine, sorry, I should be clear. Yes, Deborah Meiberg. Um, talking about a lot is um, fabric textures and as somebody who at one point um, was studying fashion design that that resonates with me very well unfortunately in Italy a lot of the a lot of the men even not Italian men who joined our course seem to have a heightened awareness of fabrics as well so it's not quite like talking to my dad about fabric he would just have not the faintest clue what I was talking about Right, so we're going to do a, a podcast on fashion next, on, <laughs> on clothing. Yes. You're very elegantly dressed and quite quirkily dressed, I have to say. And you have a, you're, you're with child, as we say, so you, your bump has grown since last I saw you. So I hope everything mm-hmm. is going well. Yes, um, so. Thank you. Uh, amazing lady, you've been on your feet for the last hour teaching your students. Now you're coming here to answer questions from me. Uh, and you've done so with great aplomb and great, in an entertaining way as well. Thank you. You know, I looked at your matrix for your taste oh this is gonna be like the longest half hour of my life you know? <laughs> but as ever with you it wasn't so Sarah Hello, thanks very much for coming in today right. thank you Monty really uh, for explaining your today. um your tasting what's it, a tasting matrix I guess yeah, or method yeah yeah so any, anybody that wants to learn if you're in the trade you want to learn about Italian wine um sign up to Sarah's course with the Italy International Academy we and you will learn something I'm, I'm gonna to have, to have to book my ticket yes please do book immediately thanks Sarah This podcast has been brought to you by Native Grape Odyssey, discovering the true essence of high-quality wine from Europe. Find out more on nativegrapeodyssey.eu. Enjoy. It's from Europe. Follow Italian Wine Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.